greeting cyberspace and welcome to episode 137 of the Double Density Podcast with your host, Brian Angelo. Double Density, your home to tick tales and paranormal primers. Now, first things first, Angelo, we have the immense pleasure of welcoming a guest onto the show tonight to talk about a whole host of our favorite things. And uh, we're not talking about your love of Apple, even though I know you want to talk about it because you received yet another Apple package in the mail. Uh, we are joined... Uh, this time by Ian Rogers. So Ian Rogers is a writer, artist, and photographer. He's the author of the award-winning collection, Every House is Haunted. His novelette, The House on Ashley Avenue, was a finalist for the Shirley Jackson Award, and a sequel to that story, Go Fish, was recently published on Tor.com. Ian's work has been selected for several Best of the Year anthologies, and many of his stories have been optioned for film and television. Ian lives with his wife in Peterborough, Ontario. But beyond all that, however, Ian is also particularly interested in the field of ufology. Ian, welcome to the show. Let's start with that. Come in. Thank you very much for having me. That's great. I'm really excited to be here. So, ostensibly a writer, uh, but someone who has reactivated their interest in in ufology, right? So, you've had a longstanding interest in in all things uh, uh, earthly as well as extraterrestrial. Oh, absolutely. I've just been a been a big big fascination with all unsolved mysteries, especially as it relates to sort of ufology and the paranormal. So, uh, has this been like a lifelong thing for you? Yeah, you know what? I think it was probably from my parents. They were they both had the same sort of interest. We would always watch shows like, you know, Unsolved Mysteries and Ghost Documentaries, that sort of thing as kids where you're you're kind of terrified to watch it, but you can't you can't help yourself. So it's uh, <laughs> my mom. My, my mom was a big Stephen King fan, so there was always like horror books lying around the house, and they like like watching horror movies and stuff. And the the rule in our house was you're allowed to read whatever you want and watch anything you want within reason, but the moment it gives you nightmares, you're cut off. So <laughs> it was. Uh, I think that's sort of where it went into uh, UFOs and then the paranormal and the X Files and that sort of thing. Uh, that that's what I was raised on. So Ian, when did it go from uh, a passive hobby to something more of an active participation in the whole thing? Um, I would say probably around um, high school. Um, growing up, I always had the interest in, in sort of UFOs and the paranormal, but I think uh, it sort of dovetailed with my, my father was a uh, RCMP constable at the time. And uh, I was taking law courses in school. And although I wasn't really interested in being in law enforcement, I, I sort of could see that if I wanted to go that way, I sort of had a, um, I guess, the skill set, I guess, I guess you could say. I could see that I, I could do that if I wanted to. I had a, a, a knack for, uh, for that sort of work, but no desire whatsoever um, to, to be a police officer. But the big TV show that was on at that time, this was the early nineties was the X-Files. So I was basically thinking that if there were real X-Files, uh, in say the RCMP, I would actually would love to do something like that. And of course there wasn't. So I went off and, uh, worked at a video store all through high school, <laughs> <laughs> almost the same thing, exactly. but I, yeah, it's all for research. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and then when I saw that a lot of the people who investigate the, the supernatural or UFOs are, more or less amateurs. Uh, I figured, hey, you know, an eighteen-year-old kid could do this too. Then, <laughs> and I thought that I would just try looking up, uh, investigating local cases, uh, as it were. There was a Mufon had a Ontario chapter, and I sort of got in touch with with them. And uh, I lived close enough to Toronto, and uh, there was a lot of uh, cases being reported out of the city. And it just sort of went from there. It was just something that I thought that I would give it a try. You know, it's here. Um, I'm interested. Um, it doesn't. It wasn't certainly not a job that anyone could really do as a as a career. I think most uh, people in ufology all all have uh, actual jobs, or they try to uh, um, supplement it with books and lecture circuits and you know such. That wasn't something that I was thinking of doing. It was more just I'm interested in this. I take it seriously from a 
scientific point of view, and I've got the not the maybe not the investigative background, but I definitely have the interest and the the scientific mind to uh, explore this in a in a methodical way, you know. And at that point, we didn't really have much of an internet either, so you had to kind of get down into exploring it and researching. There was no just you know type in UFO into Google and you get a oh, whole yeah. bunch of information. You actually had to actively work at it. The the contacts I made at the time, I remember there was a there was a UFO line. It was called like UFO updates or something, and it was a phone line. I did more stuff on the phone than I did on the internet. The internet was sort of there, but you're right, it was just sort of coming out. The the Usenet groups were very popular, um, and I met some people through there, but uh, it, it was still largely like on the on the phone, you know, in, in trying to connect with people that way. Like there was no Google, there was no Canada four one one. It was really sort of grassroots researching, you know, which was good. You know, it sort of, uh, I wouldn't say it keeps you honest, but it's sort of, it's a legwork that, um, that I think uh, you, you, can, you can learn it, but you, it's one of these things that you, you're, you're going to decide your own level of involvement by how much, how much actual legwork you're going to um, put into it versus how much time you're going to spend behind the computer. You can do a certain amount of that today, obviously, because uh, um, the world is so digitized and there is so much information out there at your fingertips. But I also write fiction and I write about detectives and stuff like this. I write a lot of detective fiction. And um, I think this sort of the two go hand in hand. It's just you can't beat legwork. You just cannot beat classic knocking on doors, talking to actual human beings, you know. So I feel like when you uh, look into a case, right, there's two elements, right? There's the event itself, and then there's also um, the people who have participated in this event, right? So I feel like uh, back then it was harder um, to sort of form a uh, fully formed picture of someone, you know, right now, like we were just saying, like, I can go to Google, type in someone's name, get a rough idea of who they are and what they're up to, versus like, you have to read the person in the room, so to speak, in order to understand the veracity of their claim, as well as um, their uh, level of truthiness, Oh, absolutely. I mean, some people, I mean, you'll, you'll find people who, who either they, they lie because they want attention. They lie because they're lonely. They, they lie because they just, you know, the, their lives are, are the usual humdrum, going to work, come home, sit in front of the TV. This is something new. It's something, you know, exciting. So they're not all, there's not necessarily nefarious reasons why people might lie about something. But a lot of times I remember you would have to, they would either have to come to you, like the witnesses would have to come to you, they would seek you out, or you would have to somehow try to reach them. Again, now because you've got social media, you could just post something um, and people could see that post and contact you that way. But back in the day, it was like you would have to put an ad in a local newspaper and say, if you saw something unusual on this night. Um, and a lot of times you would try to uh, question people and it would be, oh yeah, I saw it on this night and it was really cloudy. It was like, well, actually that's not the night in question and it was rainy that night. So you would be able to discount people because they, would, they wouldn't they would even be talking about the same day you were talking about. And it, it was really, it would be really frustrating. Like this is the kind of um, uh, scut work that would just phase out a lot of the investigators, or would, would be investigators, because it's it's just not glamorous. You know, it's what you see on TV, like anything, you know, police work or or any of this kind of work where they try to really dress it up it's uh well it, it's not the x-files it's really not the x-files <laughs> i found that out very very quickly <laughs> but in a way that makes you more interested in what you're doing to pursue it that much uh, i i go back to the fact that you didn't really have internet like we have now you had yeah you mentioned the new use new uh, the the usenet groups and things like that those were you still had to dig into those things and that's probably why your interest is, was so high and you kept at it. Mm-hmm. For somebody to keep going 
you really had to like it, especially because it wasn't easy. You had to make mm-hmm. phone calls. You had to, like, nobody likes using the phone anymore. Uh, and you had to, the newspaper and put out ads and that. That's a lot of work. Yeah, you have to be, you have to be tenacious. That's, that's for sure. And I, and I will say something, and I will say that about myself, is that I'm, one of the things I would be really frustrated with just in general would be, like, if someone wasn't, if I, people I was working with, if they, if they weren't going to work as hard as me, I would get really, really frustrated. So it was basically me and one other guy, this this friend of mine, Todd. And he was the person I could rely on because he was interested as much as I was. He was as skeptical as I was. And he would work as hard as I was, if not harder. And that's really what it would come down to. Because if you're going to treat this seriously, it requires... Um, hard work, like like anything, uh, it's it's like just like being a writer. You know, you're you're writing these books by yourself. Um, it's nice to have support from family and friends, but at the end of the day, um, unless my butt is in the seat typing the words out, it, the, the the work just does not get done. And books are very long, so you really have to like what you do. Um, so it, the idea is that you do the work, but it doesn't it doesn't have to. It shouldn't feel like work all the time. So yeah, I mean, it would be frustrating um, questioning a lot of people, and you would realize that an event they're talking about didn't take place on the right date, or they were looking in the completely wrong area. So they're probably not a witness to the event that you're actually investigating. But that's but that's part of it. It's no different than any police officer who is going door to doors looking for witnesses to any kind of a crime you know they some people will think they saw something some people just want to talk to you some people did see something but it's completely unrelated to to the the crime or the event but that's that's the work you know that's it's it's not glamorous but um but that's that's the way it's done roughly trying to ballpark this like how many like raw cases came your way versus how many cases then became viable due to the fact that like you reached a witness who uh, seemed credible and uh you know all of the the descriptions matched up to what you already had on hand i would say in the handful of years that i did it we probably investigated like serious cases ones where there are actual witnesses probably no no more than say 15 to 20. I mean, there were a lot of, of goose chases, which I'm not really counting on because it was just someone thought they saw something. We couldn't either find any witnesses or the people that we spoke to didn't know what we were talking about, or it was very clearly um, conventional aircraft or normal weather phenomena. Um, there, there, was, there were bigger cases like the Guardian case, um, which was sort of like the, the height of my career. After that, everything sort of paled in, uh, in comparison. But, uh, and that one was just sort of a whole can of worms. That, that, that could be a story for another time. But um, most of them were just uh, fairly standard cases. This is something that they saw. They, 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 didn't, they didn't know what it was. Um, you have to also remember, this was an age when there were video cameras, but no one, had their, no one really had cell phones. Smartphones definitely didn't exist. No one had cameras on their phones. <laughs> So no one was able to really record these events. There was very, very few pictures, and whatever pictures um, there were or video, they were always very, very poor quality. So they, you really were just investigating things based on people's word. And you could always see some people who were just sort of very unusual. There, there was always one or two people who you would meet them, and they were adamant that this was an alien encounter, and they were, they were very enthusiastic, and they were sure of this, and they also had that. And... You would also you would talk to these people. I remember there was there was one or two, and you would find that they were also like really big into um, uh, uh, you know, ghosts, or they were convinced that there was a ghost in their house. Like it, there were some people just they 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 ran the whole spectrum of it. You know, like oh, and they also believe that they are also uh, a reincarnation of a past life, and that's the reason why they're um, uh, they're susceptible to this set of influence. They see UFOs all the time because because of this. So there'd be some people like that where it's like it's very very fascinating, but you feel like well maybe. 
they're not as credible, you know, again, not for any kind of nefarious reasons. It was just, you, you would find these people who they've had every single experience. They've seen UFOs, they've seen lake monsters, their house is haunted, their, their, their son or daughter is possessed, you know, it was just like, wow, really? <laughs> All that happened to you. Stuff. Exactly, exactly. And, and super nice people. And they weren't, they weren't even, I mean, like in a movie or a TV show, they'd be trying to con you out of money, but they really just wanted attention. They were, they were really sweet people. Um, the one or two that I would remember. And again, you would talk to people um, who knew them in the area. And this is just something that they're known for. There's kind of the wacky UFO person, the wacky ghost person um, in, in that area. It's hard sometimes to kind of differentiate between somebody who's being genuine about it or somebody who just wants attention or just your run-of-the-mill crackpot. I, I find that in a lot of the cases that Brian and I have looked into, um, you know, things like Falcon Lake and all that stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, well, name some cases, Brian, but like a lot of the cases that we look into, <laughs> uh, we, I, I like to bring up Falcon Lake because uh, Stan Miklach seemed like a genuine person, whereas mm-hmm. one of the cases you were involved with, Guardian, some of the people in that didn't seem all that genuine and mm-hmm. made us all highly skeptical of that. It's sometimes kind of hard to kind of go through the different people that you kind of face and all the personalities, even in just ufology, we can spend uh, a whole podcast series on just the personalities in ufology. Oh, absolutely. Well, the guardian case is, is it's a, it's a hall of mirrors filled with carnival people. It was just, <laughs> you've got this mysterious person sending out these videotapes. He's using this alias. Like it was, I remember when I first saw the footage on unsolved mysteries and unsolved mysteries is already kind of a spooky show in the first place, which is why I loved it so much. But the Guardian case was always sort of unusual. It was, it felt like a movie. It was just, and the fact that it was, it occurred only a couple of hours from where where I lived was why it was even more fascinating. And then you put it next to Falcon Lake, which is another huge case in Canada, but has a lot more um, credibility attached to it. You've got someone, as you said, Sam Mikulak, who's just got a lot more um, authenticity and, and honesty. Um, there was a there was a location uh, where this had happened where um, um, I think that there was like slag metal or radioactive uh, material. I think that was that was found there. I'm trying to recall exactly what when they went back to where he was allegedly uh, burned by this uh, the exhaust from from the craft. Right. Whereas in the Guardian case, the area where the UFO supposedly landed um, did not take cl- uh, did not take place there. We found out that uh, through the investigation that the, the UFO was actually filmed on another set of property owned by the same people. Uh, they didn't tell us that. It took us about a year to find out that uh, this uh, second piece of property, this abandoned farm, was owned by them. Even though they knew we had been looking in this area, it was only a year later when they said, oh, we actually own that piece of property. It was like, oh, well, that's interesting. So it was just everything about these people were, was always very, very dodgy and it turned out that witnesses knew each other when they claimed they didn't. It was. It didn't take very long to see that it was um, that it was uh, a hoax, you know, and not a very well planned out one. I think it was just a classic case of they people in a in a small town. Um, they wanted some sort of they wanted some attention, and they were not expecting the amount of attention that they got in the form of major American television programs. The number of UFO investigators that came up. Versus something like Stan Mikulak, who um, I wouldn't say that he welcomed all of the publicity, but he never, he was never suspicious about it. You know, it was like, this is something that happened to me. This is a medical thing. He just wanted an explanation because he got quite sick from it. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, with Guardian also, they, they weren't exactly the brightest bunch of bulbs, but they did kind of have to work at it because back then it wasn't very easy to, to video anything. And I think that's what caused all of the attention is that they actually had a video. And what we were saying before now, you know, not everybody had a camera in their pocket. Everybody has a camera in their pocket. That doesn't change the fact that there's not much good video, which is something I always keep bringing up. Absolutely. I think on our website, we still have that, uh, that short article I wrote about how to shoot a good UFO video. Yeah. And the, mm-hmm. nobody, nobody follows it, unfortunately. But <laughs> the, the thing is for back then, well, this was late 80s, early 90s, right? The, yes. the camera you had to have with you was, it's like somebody in the town rented a video camera and said, let's pretend to shoot a UFO or something because they actually kind of put some work into it. It kind of fell apart later on in that uh, it was clearly a hoax, but mm-hmm. they did put some work into it, I guess. Oh, totally. Like there was, there was um, the, when we found out where it, it had been shot, this was, you have to remember that like, these are people that were already interested in UFOs. Um, when we were up on, on the property, there was all kinds of these like really weird signs that purported to be saying that this was like a government testing area for like DND killing fields and stuff, <laughs> nuclear, nuclear, <laughs> nuclear testing and nu- nuclear was spelled wrong. And, uh, what, what are the big tips that this wasn't actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, where they were letting off A-bombs or anything, you know? Um, so you, when you went, you, once you entered this area, it really was sort of like small town, Ontario, twilight zone. It was, you, you, when, when the unsolved mysteries people were filming in, um, and Diane Labanek's house, and she was the she was the alleged witness who saw the UFO land in her backyard. She'd always claimed that she had no interest in UFOs. She, she's she, this is her first experience. She's never really been interested in the subject. And a grip on the unsolved mysteries camera crew, um, while he's setting up a shot in their basement, uncovers uh, uh, cupboards full full of UFO books, dozens <laughs> of UFO books. <laughs> And uh, just weird stuff like that, you know. I mean, it was just when I, there were there were so many flags that just kept going up over over the course of this. But uh, yeah, I mean, there definitely was an effort by by Guardian to to get the attention of people. He was sending out material since eighty eight or eighty nine. Uh, originally, it was photographs and and documents, what were supposed to be government documents, but they very clearly were not. They were they were they were bad forgeries, even as far as forgeries went. But um, when that didn't get any interest from anyone. Uh, two years later in 91, that's when he started sending out videotapes. So it's, it seemed like, okay, you didn't pay attention to me before, now I'm going to up my game and start sending you videos of you know, what he claimed were landed uh, UFOs. So uh, there was definitely a certain level of, of, of work involved. And, and when you look at the video, I mean, I remember at the time, it just it, it was just kind of spooky. You think that there's a person in this field recording this thing. It, like it's, it is kind of a spooky looking video. It's got that kind of a found footage feel to it. I mean, we were we were pretty much convinced that it was a uh, your garden variety road flares with a uh, with a pickup truck uh, and a floodlight, you know. But again, if you in the dark, um, positioned in a, in, a, in the proper way, it, it looked eerie, you know. It's you know you had uh, people UFO investigators taking this very serious, but that was the problem with some of these investigators. You had the American investigator Bob Exler, who was the real lead on this, and his approach was. Well, if this is an authentic event, how does how does Guardian know to be there when the UFOs are landing? Like that was that's his thinking. Like whereas most skeptical people would be thinking, um, 
the other way that Guardian maybe manipulated this event. <laughs> and it's not really a landed UFO, right? It's not like he's getting, but he was thinking, oh, Guardian must be a psychic and he's getting subliminal messages to be there to, to, to witness the landed UFOs. And that was the, always the approach that really, uh, after, that's what got me out of ufology was basically sort of being, I wouldn't even say being disillusioned. It was sort of having my eyes opened by the Guardian case. And it wasn't just the fact that these people hoaxed it because most of these cases are either hoaxes or misidentifications. It was, it was the investigators who, uh, as, a, as a young person, I was 18 or 19 years old, it was like, wow, this is, this is a guy, he's, he's a former NASA mission specialist or so he said. Um, he's one of the leading UFO investigators in America, in, in the world. He's the, he's the one, the face of the Guardian case. He's, he was on all the shows and he's someone who, who was literally telling me to my face, uh, well, not to me, over the phone, that there's nothing wrong with making a few bucks because 50% of the people are going to, uh, are going to believe one thing and 50% of the people are going to believe, uh, the other thing, no matter what you do. And like, he was just like a businessman. Like he was, he wasn't quite a carnival barker, you know, like fleecing the rubes, but it wasn't far off from that where it was like, that's not why I'm doing this. It's like, this is why I'm not while I'm interested in this. Whereas for him, he was really trying to monetize the case. Uh, that was how he got me to try to start working with him in the first place was he was, he was going to include me in his book. Oh, you'll, you'll, you'll have a big part in my book, Ian. <laughs> uh, so you spoke to Bob Exler. I did. Cause Brian and I spent a whole lot of time. Uh, I wouldn't say making fun of him, but uh, he struck us as sort of like a bit of a huckster. Oh, he's totally a huckster. I can tell you that for a fact. He, he, the only reason he was even interested in me, like why would he be interested in a amateur 18 year old Canadian, you investigating kid? Like the reason why he was interested in me was because he was trying to get access to the, um, RCMP file, the RCMP investigated the Guardian case. Again, this is a, a much longer story if you want to save that for another time, but yeah, I, the, I think uh, like it's, it's almost, it's like own podcast episode. Yeah, uh, the, but the broad broad strokes are basically he needed he wanted to get access to this RCMP file, but as an American citizen, he couldn't request it. It was like through the what we call access to information, or what right. in the United States they call it the Freedom of Information Act. In Canada, we call it access to information. Ian, have you filed ATIPS before? Yes, yes. They are pains in the butt to fill out, so I commend you for having even just done one. <laughs> Well, the reason why this is this is the reason why I I have any I wouldn't even say claim to fame, but the the part the role that I played in the Guardian case was because I came in sort of late. I wasn't one of the initial investigators with Mufon Ontario when they when they first went up there. By the time I got involved, they had already realized it was a hoax. So I was treading a lot of ground that they had already uh, already uh, you know they'd already cut that trail, um, and they'd also worked with Bob. They found out again, uh, like with me, they found out pretty early on that this guy was just in it for the money. He, he wasn't a legitimate investigator. So um, I didn't know that at first. My first contact with the investigators was through Bob. So uh, I wish, of course, if I, had, if I had contacted the MUFON Ontario people first, I could have avoided a lot of headache. But on the other hand, talking about how difficult it is to, to file one of these requests, even the Canadians, when they filed the request to get this document from, from the RCMP, all they could ever get was the, the conclusion document, the summary document, which was like five or ten pages. They knew that the constable who had investigated this, uh, a guy named uh, Dennis DeHate, um, they knew that there was like a 200-page document like uh, of all this case notes and photography, like photographs and stuff. All they were getting was like the 10 page conclusion, which didn't really tell them anything. They wanted the meat. They wanted the full file. So you, you're right. You have to know how to file the proper request. And this is the thing that Bob wanted. This is, and they wanted it too. The Canadians wanted it as well. So this is where I came in because my father was in the RCMP. 
So he showed me um, how to make a request and ask for the proper file. And so one day I get this giant envelope in the mail and it's, it's all censored like, like any other uh, um, uh, access to information file. But I mean, if you know who all the people are, I mean, it's usually censored for, for the names. I mean, it's not like it was classified because this was a sensitive operation. The only reason the RSMP even investigated was because it was, uh, how did they refer to it? It was, a, uh, uh, it was an assistance to the public or something because like the RSMP doesn't investigate UFOs. So this was a, like a special assistance to the public. It, it was done as like a courtesy investigation, which is why there was only probably one person investigating it. So if you knew who all the people were involved, and I did, I knew who all the players were, you, it was very easy to fill in all the censored parts. So I had this document, and that basically made me the bell of the ball when it came to the investigation. That was my ticket into getting these people to sort of take me seriously and get me involved in the investigation. Because they, they knew the RCP was involved, and the RCP swings a lot more weight than they did because they have no authority, right? So the right. RCP could actually talk to these people. They could talk to Guardian, and, and not say make Guardian talk, but sort of get it on the record, I guess you could say. You know, like, you're not, you could slam the door in the face of someone who says, hey, I'm a UFO investigator, here's my MUFON badge, but you're probably not going to do that to an RCMP investigator, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> probably not, probably not. <laughs> so, yeah, he, and I actually went up there and spoke with him, me and, me and my friend Todd, we went up there and met with him. He was uh, totally open about it, I think, probably for him, it was <laughs> one of his more entertaining cases, because again, like me, it was, it was, different from his usual caseload and just the cast of characters you know he was he, the first one of the first things he said to us he was trying to gauge us to see if we were sort of ufo weirdos and he was like <laughs> you know this is a hoax right it was like oh yeah we absolutely know it's a hoax He's like oh okay <laughs> we just went from there <laughs> so since then uh, i guess in in the last three decades basically how do you feel ufology has transformed itself I think the, the, the mid to late 90s was sort of like the last renaissance of ufology because you had, it, it was a really wild time for UFOs. UFOs were more in the pop culture than anything. Like, again, you had the IDX Files, you had Independence Day, the public was really big into, into aliens and stuff. You had the alien autopsy film, the 50th anniversary of the Roswell incident. These were things that were all happening in the mid to late 90s. And then you have the, sort of this digital ev- uh, rev- uh, evolution, revolution, whatever you want to call it, with... Um, the internet really explodes, um, cell phones, smartphones. And it was funny because, of course, then you start seeing, you know, the minute that people can take pictures on their phones, I wouldn't even say that UFO sightings start to go down, but it becomes a lot easier to see if you can't, if this thing really happened, why didn't you get a picture of it? If this thing was real, especially now, right? Like alien abductions, you hardly ever hear about them anymore because if this stuff was happening, how come people aren't getting on film? How come there's no real evidence? You know, the, it stopped being taken seriously as a, as a serious science because there were really no cases that were compelling. I couldn't tell you a case in the, and I, and I sort of keep one toe, you know, in ufology and I couldn't tell you a, a major case with any kind of le- like evidence that was really provocative in the last 10 or 15 years. You know, the, the last thing that came up in the, in the last few years were these, uh, what the, the so-called Roswell slides, which I knew were, <laughs> which were, were I knew were they were fake immediately. Like there, there was no provenance for them to say that they even came from the Roswell crash and all the people involved had all these really dubious reasons for why they weren't even showing them. Like no one even got to see the slides for the first two years. People started yeah. talking about them. So it was just ridiculous. I mean, real evidence you wouldn't be doing it at some sort of a UFO conference in Mexico City. You would be taking that stuff to 60 minutes, you know? You're totally right. Like, I mean, in the last, uh, of what I can think of, 
of the more recent interesting cases was that O'Hare UFO and the Stevensville yeah, right. one. Those yep. are the ones that are yeah. the most interesting of recent times. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure Rob is screaming at us in his uh, <laughs> iPhone right now, saying, "No, there's this and that." And I'm sure he has some good ones because uh, of anybody we know, he always knows that uh, there's there's something always going on. But can you think of any recent ones, Brian, that are really like become uh, current classics? Yeah, well, classics is kind of debatable, but I think the whole Navy Tic Tac one, right? I mean, just in terms of of uh, coverage, mm. I think that's the, the biggest one, right? But I also, yeah, I mean, like it comes from an official source, but mm-hmm. uh, and we, Angela and I have talked about this. Uh, you know, a UFO isn't necessarily a UFO as you and I see it in terms of like gray aliens. It's just it is unknown, right? Well, now, especially because you've got drones, uh, military and domestic, uh, again, they're just more things that people can see in the sky. I mean, when you look at, you, you, all you have to do is you have to look at the world's biggest UFO case, like Roswell. Arguably, it's it's one of the biggest cases, the one that people think of um, in the pop culture. And it's, But it's also fascinating because when you look back at it, it's something that allegedly happened in 1947, but was largely forgotten about. It wasn't even really investigated until, it didn't pop up until like the 1970s, when people went back to really start talking about it. There yeah. were no books or cases about it, talking about it in the 50s or the yeah. 60s. And even then, it wasn't it's, it's the late about. 70s, not the early 70s, right? So exactly. it's like 78-ish. Yeah, so, and, and when it came to evidence, I mean, there's no evidence. There's no physical evidence. There was a lot of testimonials by people who were there or people who knew people that were there. And I mean, I guess eyewitness accounts are, I guess, a, sort, a type of evidence. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's not... You can't take that to a courtroom. I mean, that's not going to fly. I mean, it, it's 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 compelling. Like, I'm... I'm not trying to shoot it down completely because if I did, I wouldn't be like, I am interested in the subject, but it's like, it's like our modern folklore. You know, I I find it really fascinating. Um, uh, Jacques Vallée uh, wrote a book, uh, was it Passport to Magonia? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's probably like the best book on ufology because he really draws the comparisons between say alien abduction to um, medieval myths about fairies visiting people and stealing kids and stuff like this. I mean, there was always a, a connection that you could draw back on to say, you know, um, I have a friend who who used to suffer from sleep paralysis, and um, I mean, sleep paralysis. You can draw a line between that and alien abduction to old hag syndrome. I mean, it's all there, right? I mean, it's all past fascinating as a cultural study of our folklore and how the myths change over time. It's exactly that. But it doesn't necessarily make me think that aliens are visiting us today. Like, I wish they were. I think it would be really, really cool. But but I come from a science background, and I, I don't want to belittle anyone for, for, for their stories. Because whenever someone tells you this story um, about um, they saw a ghost, or they saw a UFO, or an alien, or they saw a Bigfoot, or a lake monster, they always tell you the same thing. Oh, you know, like, uh, I'm not easily fooled, or I'm really, really skeptical, but this is what I saw. I know this is true. I, I, there's no possible way it could be something else and you'll never be able to convince me otherwise. Like there's so many people and that's, that's their thing. That's their experience. Right. But right. it's so close to like a, like a religious belief that it's, they protect it like that. Right. It's, it's something that it's not really rooted in something that they can prove. It's, it's how they feel. That's why they're so passionate about it. So it, it's really hard to be the investigator who's coming in from the outside, who's trying to prove that it's real and they don't really have anything, you know, like they don't usually have any physical evidence. You know, they might have a picture. Maybe they've got like a video or something, but but usually they don't. And if they do, it's of poor quality or it's not um, 
it's not persuasive of anything. Like, yeah, that looks like a light, you know, that here's a, you went to an abandoned house and there's, it looks like a camera flare to me, but to you it's an orb because orbs are apparently things. Right? Yeah. So it's, I've always tried to come from from a very skeptical angle, but at the end of the day, like, I, I like that. I like the frisson, like the, the spark of, of seeing a video of something that could be a UFO. It could be a ghost, right? Like, even if I don't believe it, it's, it's something that, it's probably why I ended up writing horror fiction. I like being scared. You know, I like, I like to scare myself. I like coming up with things that will scare me because if they scare me or if they excite me or entertain me, then maybe they will do the same thing for, for, for readers. You know, one of the best videos I ever saw, it's not UFOs, it's not ghosts, but it's, it was the video that inspired the, uh, the, uh, the Japanese horror film, dark water. I'm, I'm, I can't not remember the, uh, the Japanese name, but it was the, uh, the video, and it's like 11 or 12 minutes long, but it's this uh, uh, young Japanese girl moving in and outside of an elevator. And the elevator doors would, would sort of open and close. And she's looking outside the outside the door and she, she looks like she's seen someone. And this is all done on like the, the, the elevator camera. It's like a, like a CCTV thing. And this was a girl who was um, ended up, they found her body in the... Um, the 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 water tower the reservoir on top of this like an apartment building a, a motel or something and they believe that she had some sort of a mental health issue and that's why she was acting the way she is in the video but if you didn't know that it looks like she is playing like hide and seek with a ghost or something that's it's, creepy I'm and, the, and, the, and the, the, the elevator is moving really weird too like it's not like she's pressing the door open or the door closed thing like they were basically saying the elevator must have been malfunctioning because the elevator is acting very very weird in the video but i tell you go watch that video watch the video probably I don't during when, watch the sun, the video. When, when, when the sun is out but it's again there's no ghosts there's no right. ufo well now you have me looking around me. behind me <laughs> <laughs> angelo for reference her name is elisa lamb if you want to look that up no i don't want mm. to actually you're gonna have to oh uh, so you, you did bring up a good point that I'm going to upset Brian with now. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Everything you said, you know, with people seeing something and they know what they saw and they don't get easily fooled, uh, brings me back to magic tricks because mm-hmm. that's the whole point of those. It looks like you're doing something impossible with no explanation, but obviously there's a way to do it. There's not these uh, magicians aren't going around with actual supernatural powers. They're tricking you. Like even people right. like Yuri Geller who claims to have powers He's a magician. So mm-hmm. they things that seem impossible are actually possible. And the other point you were making about how a lot of UFO evidence is eyewitness testimony. Just an anecdote here. I've mm-hmm. gone back and started watching uh, Doctor Who with my daughter. Mm-hmm. And I haven't watched in years the, the old episodes, just going back and watch them. And there's things that I think, oh, this is what happens. I remember this thing exactly happening now. And my memory is totally different. And totally Correct. wrong. Yeah. It's proven that your memory is not like a tape you've recorded in your brain. It's you're reconstructing mm-hmm. memories every single time you're bringing them back with little changes in them. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. The memory is very fallible, but we don't want to think it's fallible because if, if it's not right, it's like we're saying that our reality isn't right. And so when, we're, when we get upset about it, no, 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 that, that's how I remember that. that. That's how that movie was. That person starred in that movie. It's when we're wrong, it's like it threatens our reality. You know, it's right. like if that if that's wrong, what else could be wrong? It makes you sort of doubt yourself. So I understand when people get really defensive about um, things like that. There, there's a line in uh, the David Lynch film uh, Lost Highway when Bill Pullman is saying to these two police detectives that uh, um, um, they're asking if he has a uh, a video camera because they've been getting these. Him and his wife are getting these really strange videotapes dropped off on their. Uh, 
on their doorstep. And he says, uh, no, he doesn't have a video camera. He, and his wife says, uh, it's Patricia Arquette, says, no, no, uh, he doesn't like them. And the detective's like, well, why don't you like video cameras? And he says, I don't, he goes, I like to remember things the way I remember them, not necessarily the way they happened, you know. And it ends up being this big sort of motif for for the film. But it's a very provocative line because it speaks to to memory and the way memory works versus the way we we think that it works, ironically. <laughs> yeah, <you know>? and, <laughs> and then later on, that same man becomes president and leads the United States through fighting uh, aliens. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, exactly. So it all works out in the end, you know? <laughs> well, coming back, to Ian, to what you were saying before about, uh, you know, fiscal evidence, I was just thinking um, uh, in terms of Roswell, right? So I infamously or famously, like, um, uh, radio host Art Bell got mailed what were allegedly some pieces of a Roswell craft, right? And he was calling the Mars parts and him and Linda Moulton Howe were investigating that. And now recently, I don't know if we've covered this, Angelo, but To the Stars has bought those parts. So just, you know. Oh, I didn't uh, know that, so we definitely yeah. haven't covered it. Yeah, so ufology is just a snake eating itself right now. It oh is. yeah, well, and it's all the same players, right? Like I remember Linda Moulton held back from the the cattle mutilation days. I mean, right. she was a big. Uh, she had a lot of legitimacy at that time as this award winning journalist, and she was uncovering these things. And I remember uh, Strange Harvest. I think it was yeah, called uh, the Strange original or Alien Harvest. Alien Harvest. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah, but I mean, it was really really compelling because again, she was she was looking at it from a legitimate journalist background. She was treating it like it was something that could have been like a segment on something like sixty minutes. And then she kind of went down the rabbit hole with some of the cases that she attached herself to and said, oh, this is really real and this is not. It's like she almost got lost in the the the, uh, the hall of mirrors that is ufology. And when you go down there, you kind of lose your legitimacy. <laughs> do you think that's what it is or do you think that maybe like the the economic side of things became suddenly much more interesting? Like you were, you were talking about Wexler before, right? And he was selling the Guardian videotapes for like 40 bucks a pop US, right? So oh, I yeah, feel like yeah. there's that whole side of it where – there is money to be made if you play it smartly, but not necessarily correctly. When when I started working with Bob and he was sending me the original Guardian material, and I think he sent me a copy of the Guardian tape, in addition to this package of material was also all of these catalogs of videotapes that he was selling. So it was like, yeah, yeah here you are as my, my, my research assistant. And if you'd like to get more tapes, you could get them for $39.95 <laughs> plus shipping. You know, it was like, thanks, Bob. You know, it was just, it was, it was very much the American way, right? I mean, yeah, of course. Like, if you can do this and you can make a buck from it, why not? Right? right. So, I mean, you can't really dun him for it, I guess. I mean, it's capitalism at its finest. But on the other hand, it's like, this is supposed to be a legitimate study and you're, you're, you're not, you're sort of destroying that legitimacy by, by doing this. You're, you're, you're for, all, for all the people that are basically saying you're just trying to make a buck or this is all just a big scam, you're giving those people ammunition. You of know, course. It's not, it's not helpful. So yeah, after Guardian, I think like if I investigate anything after Guardian, it was never, it was anything big and it wouldn't, I wouldn't have been doing them for very long, but right. Guardian was the big case, you know? In terms of your other cases, though, like how like how many of those do you say like there is something that you could not have explained of those like fifteen or twenty you were saying that you were seriously investigating? I would say not even half a dozen, and the only reason I would say that there was something that was unexplained it was only because there was wasn't any evidence to say one way or the other. You know, like what you're describing or what I can see in this photograph or this video does not look like or does not act like a conventional aircraft. Um, if you're in an area where there's an airport and they will let you have, uh, they certainly wouldn't let you have access to radar tapes, but you can ask them for a time and they would say, you know, there was nothing in the area at that time. I mean, you, you go through the suit certain motions. There are certain motions in investigation where you can look at things and rule out certain things like weather phenomena. Well, this could this have this. No, no, no. The, the moon was this. It was only out at this time, this period of the time. So it couldn't have been the moon. It's again, it's a sort of, um, 
the legwork investigating that uh, it's not glamorous, but you sort of have to do to discount things like, oh, it could be the moon, oh, it could be Venus, you know, like it's just supposedly that's how Philip Philip Mantle died. This guy was like an Air Force pilot and he died chasing a UFO, which was supposedly Venus. Venus is bright. Venus is very bright. Venus, Venus can be unusually bright, and anything in the sky, you have to also understand, like the human, like like the mind, the human eye is really fallible. I mean, our eyes are good, but I mean, we can't see, you know, we we can't see into you know, ultraviolet. We can't see the infrared. You know, like it's our eyes are not really that great. So, but we but we bank so much on what they can, what they process. You our know, per- like, our peripheral yeah. vision is terrible. Oh yeah, yeah. So and that's when you when you take very that, easy yeah, to fool somebody with stuff done in the peripheral vision. Yeah. Well, and this is what I mean, but people are so sure, right? And and you don't want to take that away from them because you don't want to close off that information, you know. You don't you want to go out there saying immediately you don't believe people or no one's going to talk to you. But at the same time, you you you're just trying to be kind of like a balancing rod to this thing. Right. And and, I, and for me that's just where it just kind of got exhausting because I just wasn't really seen anything that was making me feel like I was that there was anything to it you know like I, even the most popular cases like I said when you talk about when you break down Roswell for what Roswell really was there's just there's nothing there there's no debris there's no bodies there's no pictures there's a lot of people with a lot of really interesting stories but even the stories don't jive you know it's just it, well yeah like I was just listening to an interview you know? with uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. like talking about his dad's adventures at Roswell and just that trying to line that up with all the other stuff out there right uh, looking at the you know, uh, the day after Roswell book and then trying to like figure out which is what and where is where it, it doesn't jive at all. No, no. Well, and that was the thing. Jesse Marcel, um, his father, like even his testimony, apparently, like he's considered, um, the main witness, right? Like he was the one that, that, that was there. He, he was the first at the site, but even the, I've heard, I can't remember the specifics, but there were, there was even parts of his story that contradicted, um, he contradicted himself, you know, like, I don't, th- again, I don't think he was doing it for money. He was, he was a, he was an old man when he was, uh, doing his final video testimonials. It had already been 30 years, you know, that where he's talking about an event that had occurred uh, 30 years previous. So he'd probably forgotten some stuff, but again, it was just one of these things where I like to think that if it was me at that time, and this was this huge event, you would have just pocketed something, you know, like this is the reason why I just don't buy into the, the, the worldwide UFO conspiracy, because if the government has this, if the government recovered a craft from Roswell and you had, you know, you, you had them, you would have had to have had hundreds of people out there cleaning up all the debris from this craft. It wouldn't have just been five or 10 people, you know, to, to maintain this conspiracy. You would have people gathering up this material. You tell me that one guy could have pocketed a piece of this alien alloy and taken it to, you know, the Washington Post, you know, it's just like, that's, that's all it would need. You right. All you need is put this thing into a spectrometer and you say, this thing cannot be found in any of the elements on this planet. Boom. Extraterrestrial by definition, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's never happened, you know, like there's just all these things and let's face it, you know, if you know the literature, uh, Roswell was only one of supposedly hundreds of UFO retrievals that have taken place all over the globe. Most of them in the United States always not near a populated area. It's always the, these, these ships are conveniently landing um, in the desert. You know, thankfully they're not crashing <laughs> into our cities. It's always somewhere remote. But the recovery efforts would require hundreds of people. And yep. you're telling me that one person couldn't just pocket something and yeah. take it to the press. Like that's, that's the reason why. Like conspiracies make really cool stories. It's like what's happening right now with, with the pandemic. I mean, no, that's not a cool story. But I mean, it's, um, 
people want someone to blame. Conspiracies, they, they bring order to chaos. And that's, I can understand why people want to cling to them. But they don't really make a lot of sense. You know, right. at the end of the day, they just, they don't really make a lot of sense. This, uh, the best argument that I've heard about why, uh, not to get into the whole pandemic, but the idea that, say, COVID-19 wouldn't be a bioweapon, they basically said that if they were going to make a bioweapon, they would make something that had a higher death rate than what COVID-19 actually has. You know, so it's something that, it, it, it allows people to either order the chaos in their life or give someone to blame. You know, yeah. whenever you look at conspiracies, whether it's JFK or Roswell or whatever, it's, it's a chaotic moment in history and it allows you to attach some order to it by saying, this is what happened as aliens or it's the one world <laughs> order or it's underground UFO bases, whatever, right? I mean, whatever you want to blame, whatever, wherever your bias lies, that's, that's who you want to blame. You know, it's, it's the left, it's the right, it's these, it's the foreigners, it's, it's whatever, you know, like whatever you want to blame, there'll be a conspiracy that will fit you. <laughs> kind of flipping the script here uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, large UFO events, what to you is like the most believable one out there? Like just either classic historical new, um, something you were part of, something that is just in the popular parlance of, of the times. What would you point to if someone's like, what do you think? Well, I wasn't involved in it, but we were talking about it earlier. I would say in terms of... Um, like popular cases that like that I'm aware of that are in the in the uh, in the field. I, I I think I like Falcon Lake. Like Falcon Lake to me was always really compelling because, I mean, if you're going to use the uh, Alan Hynek rating of like close encounter of the first kind, second kind, like it just really matched a lot of those things. You had you had uh, a person suffering like physical uh, ailments. You know, like, he had the burns. He suffered like sickness um, as a result of it. It wasn't just the burns. He he was ill as a result of it. Whether it was radiation or something else, there was trace evidence on the ground um, in terms of this uh, melted metal that uh, I believe was recovered by by investigators who went back up to the site. Um, you obviously you had a sighting of, of a craft. Um, it wasn't just a sighting in the air of an object. It was a nuts and bolts craft that left an impression on the physical environment. Um, and I believe he, I believe the craft um, opened at one point, or, or there was a doorway. I yeah, think like he, he said he saw occupants. Yeah, so I think he saw occupants. So again, there would have then there was also the the uh, the alien component. If if they were in fact aliens or supposed to be aliens, or if unless it was supposed to be a experimental government craft. Because I believe that he thought that it was foreign. I think he was trying. I think he was a polyglot. I think he could speak a number of languages. Yeah. So I think he was trying to speak to them in German and Russian and stuff, thinking it was just an experimental aircraft. So I think for that case, because you got a witness who's he's not deceptive, um, comes across as really honest. He's not hiding anything. Um, he's not using the case for financial gain. Uh, he's suffering physical effects. Um, he was able to direct people to an actual location. Um, where this was, he's not deceptive. Oh, I couldn't remember where it was, or I was, I you know, it was in this area, but I couldn't tell you specifically. Like he, he was just a classic, really good witness. He was like, like what they would say, like uh, in police terms, like he was like he was like the perfect witness. You know, like he was yeah. just, he he gave them everything that they needed. So for me, I would say that I'm still not convinced it was aliens. I don't know what it is. I, it's because it has all these components, but my skeptical nature is like. You know, maybe he really did just fall on a barbecue. <laughs> like I don't know. Right? It was just I don't know. Right? Like you had the grid pattern, but it was just so unusual. There's really not anything like it else in the uh, in in UFO lore that I can really compare it to. When you look at uh, so many of the other cases where 
if you know, like you've got we were talking earlier about Billy Meyer, you know, like you've got these cases where you've got a lot of videos and you've got people who claim to have actually met aliens, but but they're really they're the opposite of uh, of Mikulak. They're they they want money. They're really deceptive. The oh, I can show you the UFOs, but I can only show them to you at a certain time. It was just they've always got this sort of this dog and pony show, and which makes them seem like uh, like a like a Yuri Geller, right? Like whenever. Uh, Whenever he was going up against James Randi, it was like, oh, well, the energy's not with me today. Yeah. It was like, oh, that, that's too bad, you know? Like, maybe get some sleep next time, you know? Like, it was just, he's a con artist, right? Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. just, this is the reason why I like someone like the James Randis or the Penn and Tellers of the world, because, like, like they're magicians, but they're not magicians who are trying to scam anyone. You know, they're, they're trying to entertain. They're not trying to take advantage of people. Yuri Geller's trying, trying to take advantage of people, you know? And which he's is changed why, his tune you know, recently. He still kind of is cagey about what he does, and... And where he gets his powers from, but he's he's a little uh, more tongue in cheek now. Still, mm. uh, his past things uh, still bother me, and he's still a very uh, let's say controversial figure in magic. But oh yeah, uh, and he still doesn't acknowledge that he's a magician. He acknowledges he says that he's he's got powers. So mm-hmm. it is frustrating when uh, on that end. But yeah, most magicians, though, like you were saying, Ian, are they're entertainers. They're not there to fool you in terms of making you think they have powers that are fool you in terms of entertainment. Right. right. That's a really good point. Uh, I feel like this is a great place to end episode 136, uh, 137, sorry. Um, Ian, I know you'll be joining us uh, next episode, but before that, where can people find you on the internet? Um, well, it's funny. I used to, uh, my day job before I started writing full time, I was a web developer. So I actually have a, a few websites. Uh, the, the main one you could find is uh, ianrogers.ca. Or you can also find me at ian-rogers.com. And you can find all my other websites from, that's sort of like my hub. Uh, that's where I keep my writing. But from there, you can find it about my photography, uh, Twitter account, uh, Instagram, all from, all from that location. Perfect. In that case, join us next week as we continue this weird and fun discussion about everything otherworldly. Angelo, Ian, see you soon. See you soon. Take care.